you are listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. Uh, I am so, no, I'm not socially distanced. I'm Paxson Wright, and this is the show called Socially Distanced, which I host with my co-host Justin here. Say hello, Justin. Hi, I'm Justin. I'm also not socially distanced. Well, I am socially distancing, but I'm not socially distanced the embodiment of the show. I am simply one of the co-hosts of the show. This is a good intro we have going this week. I'm a big fan of it. (laughs) This is going great. Okay, yeah, so just hopping right into it. Uh, If you've tuned into our show before, you know that we're uh, two uh, dorky white guys who talk about video games and movies and stuff. And this week is no different. Justin, you dorky white guy, what video game or movie or stuff have you been up to this week? All right, Paxton, you dorky white guy. I have been playing the Final Fantasy VII Remake. So actually, uh, before I get into this, uh, Paxton, I wanted to ask, did you ever play the original Final Fantasy VII? Yeah, I actually, that was always one that I, I just, it was, I, I, I knew I had to get around to it. I knew what an important cultural thing that game was. And only earlier this year, I bought the port for it on Switch. Mm-hmm. Um, so this game from 1997, I just started playing in early 2019 in preparation for the remake. And then I think I got distracted by Death Stranding or something and I never finished it. Uh, but I got, I got a good way through Midgar, the, which is the first area of the game. Yeah, so I actually, I did not play Final Fantasy VII when it first came out. I played the first disc of it on an emulator on my cell phone in high school, and that would have been on a Droid X. And, oh, the optimal playing experience. Oh yeah, exactly. Um, it's, a, it's a good thing that like David Lynch only cares about watching movies on phones and not playing games on phones. He'd have <laughs> words with me otherwise. Um, what yeah, the so... hell is wrong with you, Justin? Put it down! <laughs> <laughs> oh man. A side note, David Lynch almost made a video game, couldn't get any like publisher to like actually publish it, and he since like gave up on video games in the nineties and I just there is a better reality where Lynch got involved in game development and we don't live in that reality. There's an even better reality where I had never heard that story before and I didn't know what true crushing disappointment felt like <laughs> until so just sorry. now. So thanks oh, for that man. one, Justin. I'm so sorry. <laughs> oh, anyway, man. tell us about um, FF7 Remake. Okay, so I only played the first disc of Final Fantasy VII, the original, on my phone before my save file corrupted and I was like, I'm not playing 10 hours of that game again. But I have this like weird other kind of nostalgic relationship to Final Fantasy VII where... I didn't own a game console until I was 10. And this would have been like in the period of like the Xbox and like the PlayStation 2 being a thing. But I always was really intrigued by Final Fantasy VII. And so when I would go to Barnes and Noble with my parents, I would go to the game guide section and I would look at the Final Fantasy VII game guide. (laughs) I was always just like, as a very, very dorky youth, just transfixed by this thing. But really, like, my understanding of it kind of doesn't go beyond, like, what is kind of culturally received about the game. So, like, I know nothing about the ending. Uh, Spoilers for a 20-year-old game here. (laughs) I know that, you know, uh, Aerith or Aerith, the remake, uh, calls her Aerith. I know that she dies. And, And that is a bit of cultural knowledge that I feel like most people who play games have received. Like, it's an example that for a lot of people happened in their childhood where there is a big death and like you've not only invested emotionally in this character, you have also invested in terms of like 
gameplay into her. You know, you've like ranked Aerith up. You have equipped things to her. Like you have this kind of like pragmatic investment in her as a mechanic in addition to her as a character. And then she dies in the game as part of the story. And so Final Fantasy VII Remake, it looks great. It plays well. But the thing that really sticks out to me is that when it introduces Aerith in a really effective way, it plays with the dramatic irony that you know that she dies interesting because it's such a it is such a like to just sort of come back to what you're saying a second ago like that's another thing that like i also knew about ff7 having never played it as a kid because it's like if you were like on newgrounds.com in the aughts like you just knew half the stuff that happened in that game and Aerith dying was probably the biggest note that was hammered into your head and like how that impacted so many players so yeah. it is interesting that it's one of those things where it's really obviously yeah spoiler for a 20 year old game as you said but even now it's like it is such a profound cultural moment in the medium of gaming that it is kind of like equivalent to a to like luke i am your father basically at this point so the thing about the storytelling and this is predictable it's very anime you know where like every character kind of gesticulates like an anime character and it's very you know hard on its sleeve earnest like very mawkish but also, as with, you know, a lot of JRPGs, ultimately very effective. Okay, there, there's this moment where you meet Aerith, and then you go around uh, her town helping the various people that she knows. And then, you know, eventually at one point, you meet her mom, and her mom goes like, oh, I can see in your eyes, like, uh, you you are this, like, soldier, which in Final Fantasy VII has this, like, particular importance. Like, soldiers are not just soldiers. They have been, like, treated, basically, bio-organically, and they have superpowers more or less but in a weird sort of muted way it's still a very interesting mix of like the mundane and the and like the kind of like the the grandiose and the supernatural the magical yeah and there's um i guess to clarify what i mean a little bit for anyone listening there's this moment where you go to a character's mom's house and it is a very normal looking suburban neighborhood that is that in the background you see this basically like this all of this massive kind of like pipe work and this react and this like massive reactor and it's just you get the sense of like okay this is a place where life as we understand it happens very normally but juxtaposed with all this machinery that feels kind of like cobbled together is almost like a greatest hits of like 20th century like industrial society but all at once like mm-hmm. it's very odd but anyway, so I'm sorry, uh, back to back to Aerith. So you meet Aerith's mom, who then says, you need to leave and never come back because you're a soldier. An ill fate awaits my daughter if you continue to you know, hang out with her. And so you do. And then in the moment of parting, there is this like, there is this weight where there is a perception of the finality of I'm never going to see this person again. But it's, it's almost like this moment of I don't want to leave you, but I know that I have already left you 20 years ago because I know I'll also say and this is just this is not a spoiler because this is me guessing. I think what they're doing with this remake is going to be something similar to like what the new Star Trek movies did basically said anyway. Star Trek happened, and now this Star Trek is happening in another reality. There is this plot structure where it seems like Cloud has a certain amount of foreknowledge about events that he doesn't quite understand, Cloud being the main character. And it seems as though they're kind of gesturing to, like, no, what happened in the past has already happened. So it seems like they're building into the plot structure this dramatic irony of because Final Fantasy VII has such cultural resonance within the gaming sphere, everyone knows what has happened already and it seems as though for the characters in a way that they can't quite understand it seems like that has already happened 
like I'm trying to describe it without getting into like the nitty gritty of the plot and just talk about like the way it feels because I think that's more interesting, but I know that makes it sound very unclear and I apologize. But yeah, so it's like, so you have that moment with Aerith where you really don't want to part because parting, it, it, like it means acknowledging this death that happened 20 years ago in the prior version of the game. Like the thing with like all, like a lot of JRPGs is this like theme of friendship, but Final Fantasy VII, the remake, like works with that really well through changing dynamics of like after, like when you get out of a combat scenario, the characters will exchange some words and they, they vary gradually in a way that is actually really difficult to notice, become more and more friendly as time goes on. Huh. And it's like, cause it doesn't feel like a binary of like, we don't like each other. And then there's a boss fight and now we're friends. It's very much like, they get less and less combative or snarky as time goes on. That's a, that's a really interesting development because one thing I do know about the original from what I played of it and just kind of from what I've heard is it's exactly what you described. This is this is counteracting. It is very much uh, this sort of ragtag group of misfits, all of whom seem to like not just uh, be kind of frustrated by each other, but kind of hate each other and like detest one another. And then just by way of, uh, you know, very binary cutscene, X event happens, so leads to Y, time for our relationship to develop a little. And it's like, there isn't, there isn't a sense of gradual coming to a sense of um, ag- agreeableness, I guess, with this other person. So that's a really, that's a really interesting concept that I hadn't really heard about this. Yeah, it, um, it's something that, so a thing about JRPGs that I think turns a lot of people off and i know that like has turned me off as i you know transition into adulthood is that they're very long yeah yeah and and i think honestly though i think some of the so like why i love the persona games which are also jrpgs is that they play with that length and they make the duration that you spend with characters kind of like part of this like slow progression where you want to feel that time and where feeling that time becomes like how you register the change in the relationship where it is just you know a matter of spending time in close proximity with a bunch with these characters and i think final fantasy 7 the remake by having all of these like little moments of dialogue and having that be like where these like transitions to i hate you now i like you like having it play out there and having it be very slow i think it's actually it's justifying its length in a certain way Uh, In addition to also, I'm now 10 hours into the game and 10 hours into the original Final Fantasy VII, I had already left Midgar. Right. Well, that's something we should mention for people who aren't aware is that, uh, you know, one of the big things that this game was sort of something that uh, has been kind of people have been almost split down the middle in terms of how they feel about it is that Midgar is the first, you know, five, six, seven hours of the original game uh, of the original game, which is like a 30 to 40 hour experience total. Whereas this game is exclusively just mid- the Midgar section stretched out to about 30 to 40 hours. And now they're going to make Final Fantasy VII Remake 2, Final Se- Fantasy VII Remake 3, etc., etc., being different chapters of this game now stretched out. So yeah, that, is, that has been one of the things that people seem to be uh, very uh, hotly divided on. But you're, you're, it's working for you. It is working for me, and I'm curious about going back to Final Fantasy VII, the original, and seeing like if the accelerated pace actually works well in that game. Because the moments of slowness, I think for me, are like 
are the like the moments of just kind of like hanging in one space and feeling yeah feeling that time spent so i actually think expanding the length of the game is really working for it and also um my understanding is it's using that time to develop characters that were basically non-characters in the original so like uh there are two characters who are biggs and wedge named for the star wars characters wedge and tillies and biggs whatever biggs was yeah yeah whatever yeah first name biggs i don't know but yeah now here they're here they are they are given more time they actually seem like people and devoting the extra time of the game not to just like a bunch of repetitive combat, which there is a little bit, maybe too much kind of repetitive combat, but... The JRPG. Yeah, exactly. Um, Devoting that time to, just giving the time of day to characters that didn't get it in the original is, I think, a pretty good use of that time. Well, it sounds up my alley. It's it's something I was already strongly considering purchasing, but I've probably been pushed over the edge now. Um, simply because, it, you know, slow moments to sort of brew and things are pretty much my favorite parts almost always of, like, large-scale story-heavy games, particularly RPGs. Persona 5, as you mentioned, while, like, the palace segments of that game were fun, the best parts were wandering around Tokyo, hanging out with your friends. Mass Effect 2, you know, another one of my favorite games. Uh, the combat is, it's fine. You know, it's, it's enjoyable enough, but the best part of that game is wandering around your ship and talking with your crewmates and like those moments of slowness and development are really where those games shine so if, if this is a game that basically takes the great set pieces of the original ff7 and then stretches them out for character development it sounds exactly up my alley uh yeah definitely one of the most striking moments in the game for me so far has just been this moment where you walk from Aerith's house holding like a basket of flowers and you walk through, like you walk from her house to the town, and what separates uh, her house and the town is just this tunnel, and you're slowed to a walking speed, and you just look at these like rusted over trucks that just feel so ancient, and I was just, I was so thankful that this, that this game had me walk through that, so I could just like feel the history of that place just in that mise-en-scene that I would have just sprinted by mm-hmm. and not done that. Mm-hmm. And I think that for me, like that moment represents the successes of the Final Fantasy VII remake so far, 10 hours in for me. Yeah. Well, yeah, as, as for me, I unfortunately, two weeks in a row now, I've dropped the ball a little bit in that I haven't really consumed that much. I've been kind of working on my own things. And in that meantime, have been just consuming a lot of disposable junk media that I don't care that deeply about like I yeah like you know I could sit and watch some prestige television right now like I gotta get caught up on Better Call Saul but instead yeah you do yeah but instead I'm I'm sitting here watching a 45 minute video essay about how Pyramid Head from Silent Hill 2 represents James's psychosexual urges and it's like why am I why am I that actually might be a better use of your time <laughs> uh, I don't know if that's I don't know if that's a credit to Silent Hill 2's writing or a or a besmirching of Better Call Saul's or a bit of A bit of B actually actually mostly uh, just a credit to Silent Hill 2 yeah it's a masterpiece it, it really is um but yeah so like it's been a lot of just like uh it's been a lot of that but I will say um what I did watch sort of we ended last week discussing briefly um, Hereditary, which I had just for the first time seen right before uh, this show. To sum up my, my thoughts on that, I thought it was good. 
maybe it was just coming off the, you know, two some years of hype that was surrounding that film uh, that left me a little, a little unsatisfied, but I, I'm still like, I gave it a solid B. Like I thought it was a, I thought it was a good film, but just, I just, it left me a little unsatisfied in terms of, again, without getting into spoilers, you know, it basically ends on a note of like, of cutting off the ambiguity of where the horror actually is. The horror is for 90% of the movie in this family dealing with grief in very different ways from one another and kind of lashing out and getting contentious with one another as a result of their different coping mechanisms, which was a really interesting character study and definitely gets unnerving and gets under your skin and how familiar it feels and how ambiguous it is as to whether or not anything sinister is actually going on. Then the last 15 minutes of the movie just tell you, yeah, something sinister is going on. And then it gets, it gets full blown sinister and yeah. while that horror is done well, and admittedly, like, it's it's far more cleverly told and unsettling horror than something like, you know, one of the 18,000 Annabelle movies or Insidious films of the last 10 years. Like, it's not like studio popcorn horror fare, it, but it, it left a little to be desired based on the, the setup. It felt like it just kind of pittered out for me a little at the end. And like you said last week, it basically just becomes Rosemary's Baby at the end. Like, yeah, I've, I've beat for beat seen this film elsewhere before. Yeah, absolutely. It is the least frightening part of that movie. Uh, what I will say, though, is that afterwards, I was curious enough to, to see, you know, a, a very impressed with writer-director Ari Aster's uh, work on this. And I'd also seen his short student film, Strange Thing About the Johnsons, which if you haven't seen it or haven't heard of it, I highly recommend. But uh, just prepare a cold shower afterwards because it is by far and away one of the most upsetting things one of the most upsetting 30 minutes i've ever spent watching anything um but it is it is great it it is on youtube uh 30 minutes of your time well worth it but i did after this having enjoyed it and loved strange thing about the johnsons i was like all right well let's follow this up let's go see the other hyped movie that seemed to be a bit more controversial so i ended up watching midsummer justin you saw midsummer correct yeah, I eventually watched it. Actually, I eventually watched it on my phone. <laughs> uh, yeah, when it was available. What was that? On... <laughs> Who said that? <laughs> <laughs> Watch your back. <laughs> David, please. We're recording a show. To... All right, <laughs> I'm going to go into hiding after this. <laughs> Escape the wrath of David Lynch. Um, but yeah, no, I, I, yeah, I watched it on... Uh, on Amazon, on my phone. I watched. I watched it on my phone because I was worried I would be too scared if I watched it on a big screen. <laughs> so, really laying your cards out on the table here. Yep. Um, well, what I will say is one thing I was consistently told about Midsummer from virtually everyone I talked to was whether or not they said it was better or worse than Hereditary. Everyone seemed to unanimously agree it wasn't nearly as scary as Hereditary. I and- agree. I don't how <laughs> it's, it's like not scary. It's terrifying. It all takes place in the daylight. Okay, the first like ten minutes of that movie, I think, are actually terrifying. Oh yeah, yeah. And I think we're probably like as close as that film gets to the kind of what if your family was really messed up to a horrifying degree that like the best parts of Hereditary get to. It felt like more like on the note that Hereditary should have ended on. yeah it's just like what if your family was as upsetting as they could possibly be (laughs) and and like i think the moments where that film 
comes back. I'm not sure how spoilery you want to get. It's, you know, newer uh, you, than... We'll dance around things, but we can kind of dip our toes in a little bit. Just Fair enough. You know, be, um, be, be measured with it. Okay. Yeah, well, I'll say, like, the moments where the film comes back to the imagery from its first, like, ten minutes, I think are probably the scariest moments. Because those are the moments that are never really given an explanation and are essentially just the main character's inner psychology kind of going wild. But I guess, uh, yeah, well, tell me first, you just saw this, you, uh, Paxton, dorky white guy. <laughs> but, um, yeah, like, yeah, t- tell me about your thoughts. Just, yeah, what did you think? so I don't know. I think for me, it was, I think, A, it was going in with less hype surrounding it. That probably mm-hmm. helped me a bit, because going into Hereditary being told it was going to be one of the most upsetting film experiences of my life, and being, you know, uncomfortable throughout. But by the end of it, I, I finished watching it at like 2 a.m. And I was like, well, time for bed. And then I went to bed. Uh, <laughs> that's, that's, that was, that's harsh. I don't know what that says about me, but let's not delve into it. Uh, Midsummer being told that it was like, it was, you know, creepy and disturbing, but you, you'll be fine at the end of the day. So I think maybe I just was anticipating something different. Um, mm-hmm. Because I think what got under a lot of people's skin with Hereditary was, as I said, how families deal with tragedy and also just kind of uh, family secrets and the the dark sides of families that, you know, they try to keep within the four walls of their home and, you know, leave at the door when they go outside that every family has. I've got them. I'm sure you've got them. Everybody's got them. Uh, Midsummer, on the other hand, doesn't really tap into family dynamics as much. It does in the first minute, of course, a little bit, but as it continues, it more focuses on toxic relationships and the ends thereof and the sort of mental anguish and it's also captures perfectly uh, the negative effects of some mind-altering substances and what those can do to people in the moment uh, what I'll say for me, without emptying too much baggage on the table, uh, I, I've, I've experienced both of those in the past but I will say I also, just like in this movie, wherein a couple is breaking up and they decide to take really intense hallucinogens and things only get worse from there, I have done almost the exact same thing in the past. Uh, <laughs> I decided to expand my mind when I was in a very, very dark place in a relationship a few years ago. To clarify, in a much happier place now, in a much healthier place, with a loving girlfriend, things are wonderful now. But at the time, Things were not so great. And this was like, this was like having those actual, you know, crack your spine flashbacks to the horror of those two things that should never be combined, being combined. Movies have this, have this way about depicting, you know, quote unquote trips as like, you know, oh, there's dragons and rainbows and they're flying and strawberry alarm clock is playing. What is, ah? and it's and like, those scenes can be great in their own right, but they're never grounded in reality. Whereas this one, it's just like, oh, the trees are moving kind of weird and things are a little bright and everyone's kind of being stressful. Ah, ah. It just, it captures the mood of it perfectly. And so I think for me, it was a far more darkly relatable film than Hereditary was or than I expected it to be. Uh, Granted, when I was having that that dark chapter a few years ago, uh, I wasn't involved in any Swedish murder cults that were trying to flay me alive. So I think... (laughs) Had I dealt with that, it probably would have made that chapter even more dramatic. <laughs> I'm going to say probably. I would say if, if Midsummer is anything to go off of, you probably wouldn't have survived it. No, no, I don't think I would have. I don't think I would have uh, qualified for May Queen. 
Uh, <laughs> but, but ultimately, yeah, it was beyond that. It was so strange because it was such a stressful, horrific experience to, to bear witness to, but also a simultaneously like hysterical beginning to end, like laugh out loud, funny through a lot of it. It is, uh, it is actually occasionally extremely funny. I would say, I think like my biggest mark against that film is that I definitely laughed at moments where I don't think I was supposed to laugh. Okay, well, one moment specifically, which is the, um, what I will call clearly, but also obliquely, the blood eagle scene. Yes, I kind of assumed you were going to say that for whatever reason. Which I thought was hilarious. Uh, Just because it's just so cruel. It's so cruel and it's cruelty done in a, like, when we see it, it feels more passive and to a character that basically doesn't have much of a character. So I was just like, (laughs) (laughs) um, which is not to say, like, I ultimately, I ultimately liked Midsummer, and actually I liked it as a kind of, this is going to sound weird, but I liked what it has to suggest about politics. Like, I feel like I liked it in a very detached way, in a way that, like, maybe it's not even, like, meant to be kind of appreciated. Yeah, like, where I feel like it's, like, you know, it wants to be very immediate and to kind of, like, more accurate, as you were saying, Paxton, more accurately capture a certain kind of, like, mental state. And for me, I was really interested in how the the Swedish murder cults, which are the antagonists in the film, are able to intervene using that mental state to kind of bend two specific people to their will. And how like trauma becomes this gap that like power structures can fill. That's a really interesting interpretation of it because uh, while it definitely, you know, is about the exploitation of people who are in very fragile and impressionable states yeah. and they're, they're the means by which sort of powerful forces and groupthink can go about doing that. I hadn't really considered it as a political analogy before, but uh, you're absolutely right, I think. Whether or not that was a an intentional and kind of at the forefront of Ari Aster's mind when he wrote it, I'm not sure. But I think it's very interesting. And I just, it's, not, it's not something I had really even considered uh, coming off of it. I'd considered it, yeah, more as a deeply disturbing and weirdly in a morbid, morose kind of way, uh, weirdly uplifting kind of film about relationships. The fact that the film ends on a really tragically happy note is fascinating to me. Okay, because, yeah, that's actually, that would have been my other question where I feel like, like, I, I don't, okay, so, like, the, the movie, the film ends with a smile and I feel a divide from a lot of what I've seen written about that film where I don't read that ending as happy like I read it as it is someone's happy ending but I don't read that as like the way the film wants us to feel about what has occurred oh that's a no I'm, I'm with you 100 okay. percent it is the kind of thing where uh, yeah I, we kind of have to wrap it up because we've gone over time but also because uh, I don't want to get into spoiler territory but uh yeah, it's the fact that there's a subjective happiness versus an objective happiness at play at the end. And you feel good for that person who the entire film you have felt awful for, like has been one of the most <laughs> sympathetic characters I've ever seen. Just a yeah. just a walking, talking tragedy of a person. You feel so happy to see them finally smile at the end. But the circumstances by which they're smiling are horrific. And mm-hmm. and it is just like you you're left feeling dirty. I does it's just not I I didn't walk out of it feeling good by any means, but I didn't the 
air of optimism from that character's perspective does sort of intoxicate you with that character a little bit. And it sort of, it takes you a second to kind of shake it off and go like, no, 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 that's horrific. Oh, wow. Okay. I'm, I would merely like to point out the interesting use of the word intoxication there. <laughs> There's, yeah, that, wow, wow. What a little, what a little bow we just put on Midsummer. It is <laughs> certainly a thematically appropriate word. Um, anyway, my long and short of it, I liked Hereditary. I adored Midsummer. And I really recommend Strange Thing about the Johnsons. But what I will say, what I will say about Strange Thing about the Johnsons, because I, I think it is important, definitely a content warning regarding sexual assault, because that plays a big role in the film. Uh, it's it's an excellent film, but it could be uh, deeply traumatic for a lot of people to experience. So watch at your own discretion, I would say. Anyhow, I guess that'll do it for us this week. Yeah, sounds good. Beautiful. Uh, I've got a lot of editing to do on this episode. <laughs> oh boy. All right. See you next week, everybody. All right. Take care, everyone.